I don't know about you, but uh, this year has flown by. I feel like we just turned to 2014, and I, and I look up this week, and we're less than two weeks away from Thanksgiving, and that's just crazy to me. I don't know how that happened. I, I look around and go, I really feel like we should be in February, and here we are about to be done with 2014, and as we, we get to Thanksgiving, and then uh, right after that, we run right on to Christmas and the New Year, and then It'll be 2015 before we know it. And so I was just thinking about this, and we kind of overwhelmed by that, even thinking how quickly that seems to come. And, uh, you know, what you're reminded of the time of year. I'm starting to get all these emails and all these things flooding my email box and all this stuff about Black Friday sales uh, over and over. And uh, I guess that you start to see commercials all the time and, and make, make plans for your Black Friday and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I'm just going to tell you just right from the beginning, I really hate Black Friday. Uh, I was going to say, I just don't like it, but then I thought, no, that's not really strong. And I really just hate Black Friday. And then part of it is I saw a thing the other day that I thought summed it up pretty well. It was a, a meme. I just learned what that is, which I'm kind of slow. A, a meme is a picture where they put a caption on it. I see some of you going, what? You don't know either. That's good. So I'm not the only one. But it's a picture where they put a caption on it. It just kind of summarizes one thing. I saw this picture. And it's a store packed with people, crammed in at the top of says Black Friday. And then right under that it says, only in America do we trample each other for sales the day after giving thanks for what we have. And it's kind of funny, but at the same time it's kind of sad. It's kind of depressing when you stop to think about it. And so that's what Black Friday is, to all the sales the day after Thanksgiving. It's the, the first day that Christmas shopping now begins, and so we run out and try to find the best deals and buy lots of stuff. And so I was thinking about that a little bit and just how uh, what that looks like. I saw commercials yesterday. I was watching a football game, and they kept showing the same commercials throughout the football game. And it was for Walmart. And it was talking about Black Friday and get ready for Black Friday. And then the tagline at the end is, is get a jump on holiday joy. And the picture was like these little kids, and they were playing with their toys, and they couldn't even get them to talk to them because they were so busy playing with their toys. And here's the picture of what holiday joy looks like. Make sure you get a jump on that. I thought, ah, what a terrible message, really. Right? You need to go out and buy some stuff to make the kids happy so that you can have holiday joy. And so that's what happens a lot of times with Black Friday. We start to kind of put it in those terms. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with going and buying holiday gifts on the Friday after Thanksgiving. That's not the point. But when we get into the way our culture sees it and the way it is, that tagline is a perfect example. If you don't get a jump on this and get all the stuff you need, you're not going to have a joy this holiday season, and so you better get on it. And so I was thinking about that picture and the way that looks and, and what that has. And you can see why I said, I really don't like Black Friday when I see those things and see that. And so I'd say, you know, that, that picture of just rushing out the day after Thanksgiving, kind of forgetting what we're thankful for, or maybe running to get more stuff so that you can have this holiday joy that comes from having stuff. But when I think about why I don't really don't like Black Friday is, is normally the Friday after Thanksgiving kind of starts the season, uh, kind of unofficially anyway, in our culture to prepare for Christmas. We're moving towards Christmas and we're excited about it right after Thanksgiving. We'll celebrate the beginning of Advent and we start to look ahead and think about what it means that Jesus came, that the God of the universe came down into this uh, world, that he took on flesh and that he walked among us, that he lived the perfect life. He showed us how to love other people and care for people, keep all of God's commands perfectly. And in doing so, he set his eyes on the cross and walked right into it and said, I am going to humbly lay my life down for my sheep. I'm going to give up all that I deserve for you. And so it's the perfect picture of self-sacrificing love. It is the center of all history. 
Jesus Christ's coming and his life, death, resurrection is the center of all history. And somehow we've ended up with Black Friday. That's why I hate Black Friday. When I think of what we've exchanged for what it's supposed to be and what we settle for. That we say things like, get a jump on holiday joy by buying a bunch of stuff at Walmart. And so I want us to think about what would it look like if we didn't just get caught up in all that. Sadly, as the church, a lot of times we look just like everybody else. And we get caught up in the exact same thing and we run with it. And we get so overwhelmed with the holiday season and buying and getting gifts and all the stuff that goes with it that we just get overwhelmed. And then all of a sudden it's the end of the month and we're in a daze. <laughs> And and where did it all go? And so I want us to think about what it would look like if we as Christians were what uh, Peter calls us to in in 1 Peter. We've been looking at that in men's prayer breakfast. That you are to be holy because I am holy. So God says, you're a people that set apart a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness. That we're to be different. We're not supposed to look like everything else. You know, we sometimes throw holy out there and you may go... I don't really even know what that means. Holy just means wholly devoted to God, set apart to Him, that we make Him the center and not other things. And so a lot of times we, we kind of slip into looking like the rest of the world and we kind of forget that, and we're not set apart. We don't look any different than the surrounding culture. But yet we're called to be. Jesus uses the, the analogies of being a, a city on a hill or being a light, that we should be a light and we should show what it looks like for Him to be the center of our lives and how that's different. And so that's what I want us to think about this week. We just finished the series last week that we've been in for eight weeks. been kind of one set apart Sunday here this week. And so I want us to think about this as we move into this time of year. How do we do that? How do we really look like what God calls us to be and how do we not get swept up in the holiday mayhem and all that goes with that and what our culture and the way it defines it and really have a, a, this season that we're really pointing to who Christ is and what he's done And so to do that, I want us to look at two passages in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And if you want to follow along in the two Bibles, it's on page 592 and 593. And those are actually facing pages. You won't even have to flip pages if you're using that. You'll see it real clearly. They're on the same page. And I'm going to look at two passages in Acts, one in Acts 2 and one in Acts 4. And let me just set the scene real quickly before we jump in and read those together. But Acts is a book written by Luke, and Luke's telling us, and Acts, just kind of the spread of the gospel and what that looks like and how the church spreads throughout the world. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus, speaking right before his ascension, says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so he's telling them the gospel is going to spread and it's going to go out, and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and through the power of the Spirit working in you, you're going to go and proclaim what Christ has done, and it's going to begin to spread. It'd be kind of like uh, present day if he said it. You're going to be my witnesses in Dawsonville and in Georgia and in the United States and in all of the world. Right? It's kind of growing circles up. And so when you read through Acts, what you see is that happening. They start in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall in Jerusalem. And then it does and it comes upon them in power and then they go out and they begin to spread and you see the, the gospel go like crazy. And you really can kind of see that uh, that statement of Acts 1-8 kind of playing out throughout Acts. You're seeing the circle getting bigger and bigger, kind of like shockwaves going out. And so you see the gospel spreading. But what Luke does at different times in, in uh, Acts is he'll, he'll have kind of summary statements of what's happening. And that's what I want to look at today. It's really two of those summary statements, one in Acts 2 and one in Acts 4. It's like he tells you how it's spreading and what's going on and then he just summarizes. And he tells you what's happening and how it's written and then he does it again. 
And so look at Acts 2 with me, starting in verse 42. We'll read 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, if you look at Acts 4, starting in verse 32, just the end of Acts 4, and you're going to see a very similar summary statement. You'll see some of the same things that he just said in Acts 2, but listen here. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so we're going to look at those two passages together in just a second, but let's pray before we do and then we'll work through that together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, that it is eternal, that it's life-giving. I pray this morning that as we open and we think about these things together, as we come to your living word, that you would show us exactly what you want us to see, that you would apply the truth of your word to our hearts. We pray that your spirit would move, that you would be our guide and our teacher. We just confess without you doing so, we are hopelessly lost. So we ask that you would apply this to our hearts and our minds and show us exactly what you would like us to see this morning for your honor and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here's the way I want us to think about it as we look at those two kind of summary statements together. When we think about us walking into this time of the year and what the church should look like in that, I want us to look at the early church and think of it this way. How did the early church stand out in their culture? How were they a city on a hill? How were they a light? How were they all these things that Jesus calls us to be? You see that in Acts. It's the gospel spreading. And so how were they standing out? Secondly, why was the reason they were doing what they were doing? What was the reason behind what they were doing? And then lastly, I just want us to end with thinking about what does this look like for us today? How do we live and follow Christ in the way he's called us today, especially in our culture and what it says? And so let's just think about this together. How did the early church stand out? Uh, what you see here in Acts chapter 2, I mean, just look at verse 44 again, and it says, or 43, and awe came upon every soul and many want. Wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Or, or you look at uh, verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Or you see the same thing in, in chapter 45 and verse 33 or, or 32. It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And you see this picture when you start to ask the question of how did they stand out in their culture, you see this incredible picture of a people being overwhelmed with who God is, and they just begin to give. They begin to be radically generous with one another and those around them. Right? It's, it's absolutely countercultural. It's kind of mind-boggling to think of the way they were living and what they were doing. Now, oftentimes when we talk about these passages, people get really uncomfortable. 
They go, well, that's not, the Bible's not saying we should be socialists and we should sell everything and have it. Forget about that for a minute. I want you to see, the picture I want you to see here is just the way that they are in a unity and caring for one another. The way they did it exactly is not a prescription on exactly what it should look like. But the heart behind it and what they were doing, you see how they stood out in their culture and what was going on. It says no one thought of their stuff as their own. They looked at wherever there was a need and they said, hey, we need to meet this together and they began to do that. And in all things, it says they were doing that. And I want you to think about the picture of what that looked like in their culture. What was going on as people talked about the early Christians? Can you imagine those conversations of what was being said? Hey, have you met the guys, those guys that follow Jesus? They share everything. They love each other. Any person that has any need, they step up and they immediately meet the needs. Have you been around these people? Can you imagine the conversations going on, people talking about that? Or they say, uh, everything they have is because of Jesus. They talk about grace, and they talk about what Jesus has done and how it restores us to God, and then they live like it. They live like everything that they have is really God's. And that's the way people would see it, and you see it all around. You actually can go, it's pretty cool, when you go and you read, there's a bunch of different letters from uh, right around this time, a little after, and then going forward, the next couple hundred years, that different people wrote about Christians and what they were doing. And some of them come from the Roman Empire and different letters that were happening. And what you see when you start to look at those is this picture of the gospel spreading like crazy because the Christians decided to love and care for all the people that were kind of left on the fringes. They would go out and begin to care for the homeless. They would care for the babies that nobody wanted, they started adopting all the children that nobody wanted. If there was somebody who died and they didn't have a place to be buried, the Christians would go and get them and they would bury them. And they started to take care of all these things and they became known for this. They became known for their radical generosity in all ways in the, in the Roman Empire. And the gospel started to spread like crazy. You see it throughout Acts, but it kept going and kept going. And part of it was this picture of their incredible generosity. There's actually a letter from Julian, who was, who was one of the Roman emperors, who was not Christian. He was adamantly opposed to the Christians, and in disgust, he got frustrated, and he wrote this in a letter. We have this letter, you can go look it up, and he talked about how the gospel's spreading, and he can't stop it, and he's upset, and he says, their success lies in their charity to all. They take care not only of their own poor, but ours as well. They says this in disgust. Like, ah, oh, can't stop them, right? They're so popular because they take care of everybody. And they love everybody. And they help all these people in need. And so you see this incredible picture of the early church. This apologetic in the way they were living, in the way they were caring for each other, and taking care of needs. And the surrounding culture took notice. Now, what is with these people? That they just seek to, to lay their stuff down and put the good of everyone else before them, and they seek to help each other. They seek to meet needs wherever they are. And so you see this picture when we ask the question, how did the early church stand out? Part of that, part of it was the proclamation of the gospel. Obviously it was being filled with the Holy Spirit and moving where God would have them. But part of it was this radical generosity in the way that they loved and cared not only for each other, but everybody they came into contact with. I mean, just think of that quote. They take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. And so you see this. You see them standing out in the midst of a culture that looked very different to that. I want you to think about that. 
How would that stand out in our culture today? But given what we see in advertisements and things that are going, how would it stand out today? So I just want you to think about that picture that's there. But then I also want us to think about why they were doing what they were doing. That's, that's what they were doing. They were radically generous in the way they cared and loved one another and met needs and laid down their own stuff so they didn't even think of it as their own. But why were they doing it? So go back and look at this. Why, what made them be so radically generous? Go back to chapter 2. In verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And so they were, do- so they were devoted to spending time worshiping and reading God's word and loving each other and sharing meals together, celebrating the Lord's Supper. So they were devoted to this. This was their life. This is what they did. Went from house to house and they kept going and they were doing this. Verse 46, and day by day they attended the temple together and breaking bread in homes. And they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Right? You see what it looked like to the people around it. Because they were having favor with all people because they were so overwhelmed with who God is and what he had done. They started to make God the very center of their lives. You see the same thing in the summary in chapter 4. If you look at verse 33 in chapter 4, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so you go, what made them so radically generous? Well, they were overwhelmed with who God is and what he had done and what Jesus had done for them. I mean, look at the statements that it says there. Grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. Awe came upon every soul. They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. They were living lives of thankfulness to who God is and what he's done, and it was overflowing into every part of their lives. And that's the way they were living. And you see the reason they were living that way is because they were so overtaken with who God is. Because they devoted themselves. Their whole life was centering around spending time together and, and praising God and proclaiming the gospel. In every one of those things, you see God being the very center of what they're doing. And so they're overflowing with the grace that they've received. Say that often. We want to extend the grace that we have received. And you see them begin to do this. They're completely uh, living lives that are centered around Christ. And what happens when you become so centered around who God is and what He's done and what He's done for you, suddenly finding joy in your stuff falls to the side. They don't care about saying, this is my stuff and that's your stuff because they're so taken with who God is. It doesn't really matter anymore. I don't care about this. He says they were, they were going out. None of them thought of it as their own because they were too busy worshiping God. <clears throat> they're too busy proclaiming it to everybody that came into contact to worry about that. And so when we begin to make God the very center of of our lives, the radical generosity like you see here makes perfect sense. Jesus talked a lot about money and giving and being generous and what that looks like. Uh, You see him uh, affirming Old Testament principles that are there, but you also see him quickly raising the bar to a whole new level. And so you go back and you look at the Old Testament and you look at the principles that are there and there's this idea of, of bringing a tithe a tithe meant 10%. That's what tithe means, by the way. 
means 10%, and you bring a tithe, and you bring your first fruits. It was a society, it was a farming society, and so when you uh, harvested your crops, if you had a thousand ears of corn, you brought the first hundred as your tithe. And what you were doing is you were saying, this is all from God, and it's all His, and so we're going to start with Him. And that was the picture that was there. He saw that, and people knew that, and that's kind of the way they functioned. And then Jesus comes along, and he kind of affirms that at different places, and he talks about it, but then he's always raising the bar much higher. He's talking about the way we should love him, that he should be the absolute center of our lives, that he should be the very uh, beginning and the end of everything. But he also talks about the heart that's under it. Jesus doesn't just want you to give out of some compulsion. He doesn't walk around waving his finger at people telling him you should give. He says, I want you to love me more than anything else. And so when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, I've kept all the laws and I've followed you and I've done this, he says, well, go sell your stuff and then come follow me. Well, he knew that he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. So that's why he says it. So I called him out on it. And so you see him doing this over and over. He'll say to the Pharisees, you tithe and you're so exact and you do all this stuff and that's good and that's great, but I want your heart. Are you loving people? Are you giving generously of your time? Are you taking care of those in need? And he calls them up. He's always raising the bar on that. He wants all of it. And so I read this week, and I liked the way it was said in a commentary. It says, God commands a generosity that cannot be commanded. I want you to think about that for a second. First, I want to say, God commands whatever he wants, right? God commands a generosity that cannot be commanded commanded. And what it means is, what the author was saying as they said it, is that Jesus demands all of it. It's all mine. Love me above all else. And he says, make me the center of your life in every way. And the truth is, you can't, command, you can't make someone do that by external pressures. But we, we could preach on giving every week. Just beat you over the head with you should give and you should be generous and you should do this. And maybe that would make people give more money. But that would not be pleasing to God. And so we're not going to do that. I actually have to repent as I think about it. God showed me this very clearly this week. I've preached on tithing once in four years before today. And today's not even a sermon on tithing, but I'm mentioning it, so I feel like I have to say this. And it was so clear to me that the reason I don't is fear of man. I might upset you. And so I ask for forgiveness for that. I need to repent for that. Because God calls us to give generously, and then he tells us there's a great joy that comes from that. And we go, oh, I don't want to say that. I might upset somebody. God clearly tells us, be radically generous. You see it right here in this passage, do you not? As they become so overtaken with who God is, so caught up in the Spirit and what He's doing, they just suddenly start going, it's not my stuff, I don't care. And it says, awe came upon every soul. Great grace was upon them. And you start to see this incredible picture happening of what's going on. And so the picture I want you to see is, is why were they so radically generous as they're doing this? is that they were so overtaken with who God is. God was the center of their life. His glory was the center of what they cared about. And so it was an absolute natural overflow of their heart. 
And so they started to give radically in all different ways, and they began to stand out in a culture doing that. It's an incredible picture. When we begin to see how Jesus meets our deepest needs, that he gives us a joy that can't be found in anything else, suddenly everything else takes its proper place. Suddenly we see the lie very clearly that holiday joy is going to be getting a jump start on all the stuff you want. doesn't make any sense. And so they saw that. And so the heart was overwhelmed with who Christ is and his extravagant grace and what he's done for us. And so when we think about that picture, how do we respond to that today? How do we, as a body of believers together, respond to what God's called us to and what that looks like? I think the picture, uh, I'd say it two ways. I want us to think about it, and we'll end with this. Kind of generally, and then more specifically, this time of year. But generally, I would just say to you, make steps to start giving more. Be more generous in your life. God tells us there's a great joy that comes from that. And so look for ways that you can be more generous. All that you have is His. This life is fleeting. You can't take any of your stuff with you. All those things that go together, all those cliches, they're absolutely true. And so use all that you have for God's glory. Be strategic in how you're going to do that. And so begin to think, how can I give more generously in my life? How do I begin to do that in day to day? Tithing is something Scripture tells us, kind of a a base point, a starting point. And so I would say to you, if you're not tithing, start. Now this is not a sermon on tithing. I'm not trying to go, oh, we need to raise some more money. That's not why I'm even saying that. It's just the command that it gives, and there's a joy that comes from that. By the way, I might get in trouble for saying this, depending on what your background is. The tithe, the 10%, I don't think you have to give it to your local church. I may just work myself out of a job. Right? I think it's good for a portion of what you're giving to go to your local church because this is where you do your ministry. This is where we together as a family of faith are seeking to do ministry together, and so it makes sense that a portion of what you give, a good portion of what you give, would come to your local church. But I don't think that's a command in Scripture. I think we're to be giving generously for God's glory. And sometimes that's going to be outside of giving it to this place. So good, do that. Be more generous in what you're giving. If you're here today and you're visiting, and you walked in and this is the first time, uh, I'm not apologizing for talking about tithing and money and being generous, but if you're here as a visitor, please don't give. This is not your church. If you've just walked in and you're trying to figure out if it is, if you come and you say, this is the church and this is where I'm going to be, then give. But if you're here visiting or you're here from a friend or you don't really understand what that means, please don't give because you heard that. And so I'm telling you, don't. I'm really working myself out of a job now. Don't give, and it doesn't have to be to the church, right? But I want you to be radically generous in what you're doing. So make steps for how that looks. What that looks like. I heard this years ago, and I think it was a great, just strategic thought. And you don't have to do it like this, but I heard Rick Warren say years ago that he made a decision early in his wife, uh, he and his wife and their marriage decided that they were going to try to give more percentage-wise every year. And so the first year, it was, they started at 10%, and the next year it was 11 and then the next year it was 11 and a quarter. And then the next year it was, and they've been doing that their whole marriage. How do we strategically give more and more and more to God's kingdom and his glory? 
That's a good way to think of it. So think about how you give. One of the great things, just as I say that, you can't command the generosity that God gives. It has to come as an overflow of your heart. But there's things that God tells us to do that oftentimes obedience comes first and then your heart follows. You may say, oh, I don't know about giving, I'm not going to do that, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And you make all these excuses and you don't. And then finally you just say, I don't feel it right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then guess what? You realize that there's a great blessing in giving. And then your heart follows what you're doing. And so make plans to do that. Be obedient to what God tells you and you will be blessed greatly. It actually says he will bless you more and more. It actually says he'll bless you more so you can give more. Right? So if you start to go, oh, I'll give and then I'll be rich, no, that doesn't work either. Because he says, I will bless you so you can give even more. I will bless you so that you're a blessing. It's a beautiful picture. And there's a great joy that comes from that. And so God will give you more and more uh, joyous life by giving. But, so start to make plans to give. But then specifically, what about with Black Friday less than two weeks away? How do we walk into this season as those that are seeking to glorify God in all that we have. You know, Black Friday is a really appropriate name, is it not? I think people go out and spend all this money and then there's this black cloud that hangs over them for months and months that they're now in debt. But how do we walk into that time? How do we celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas and walk through the season of Advent and as we begin to do that? What if we tried to live like Jesus? What if we tried to make our lives look like his life? I'm going to give radically generously of my time. I'm going to seek to serve other people. Instead of buying stuff for loved ones, why don't you spend time with them? Why don't you seek to serve people in different ways? What if we were to do that instead of getting caught up in what the world says? What if this was a season, instead of teaching our children to be radically demanding of what they want, it's a time to teach them to be radically generous of what they can give. That was all on me this week with my own children. Every commercial. I want that. I want that for Christmas. I go, oh, I don't want that. I don't want this celebration to be that. And so what do we do to begin to do that? And so I'm going to end with this. We talked about this. Uh, we did it two years ago. Uh, there's some churches that started a thing called Advent Conspiracy several years ago. And you may have heard of it if you've been here for a while. We've done this at different times. Two years ago, we asked everyone to buy one less gift. Just one. Right? If you've got a list, let's say you've got a budget of whatever it is, you say, I'm just going to buy one less gift and give it away to those in need. And so what we did as a church two years ago is we did that, and then we gave the money and we raised $5,000 to build a well in northern India. It's the coolest Christmas present I've ever been a part of. Instead of us buying stuff we don't need, we gave water to people who have no water, and then the gospel was presented and people came to faith. It's a pretty cool gift. It's a pretty cool way to celebrate what God's doing and what he's done for us. And so I'm just going to challenge you, we'll talk about this the next few weeks, but to think about maybe spending just a little bit less and us coming together and putting our money together to buy or give something to someone in real need. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to celebrate Christmas together as believers that want to make much of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? And so we'll talk about that, but I just want to challenge you with that. So let's pray as we end, and then we'll go to the time of the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we thank you 
for all that you've given us. We thank you that truly all that we have is yours. Every bit of it. I pray that you would help us to see that. pray that you would give us hearts that are overflowing with generosity in our lives, that we would seek to, to truly give generously to those around us. I pray that we would do so not out of compulsion, not out of trying to earn favor. Uh, I pray that we would live out of an overflow of the grace we've received, that you'd give us opportunities to do that, to, to point more fully to who you are and what you've done in our lives. And we, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our time here together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.